Welcome back to episode number 62 of the NP Dude. This is Jeff, the NP Dude, giving nurse practitioners voice. That is all of our voices, guys. You guys are doing a fantastic job sharing the show. The last couple days have been amazing. You guys are just spreading the word like crazy. Wildfire. That's how I would describe it. There it is. Um, we're at like 799 likes on Facebook. I can't break that 800, but it's been close. It was like... Uh, just yesterday, it was like mid-780s, and then boom, it was like everybody was listening, and then I touched some nerves, I got some hate mail, I got some good mail, I got got some people listening out there. I got a lot of reinforcement, though. Here's what, what happened was uh, yesterday's show got, um, I don't know, three or four people that, that sent me PMs or emails, mostly PMs, though. There was one email, I think, that was confirming kind of my... my my experience with uh, you know physicians that you know you you're like man I trust this person and then all of a sudden they're they're like behind closed doors they stab you in the back <laughs> type of thing so I had several anecdotes of people saying yeah you know I, I trusted this physician and or I you know I, I had a great rapport with this person for years and years and years and told me how great NPs were and then you know you you overhear them at a dinner party or you see him post something on a on a blog or something and it's like whoa wait a second that's not how you acted to me and and so you know there's a lot of two-facery going on is that a word two-facery I don't know but so that, that I guess the the people that are out there you know positively praising physicians for the good work that they do and that they would never ever ever say anything bad about nurse practitioners and we work great together and all that well yeah that may all be true but the problem is is deep down you know there is this dichotomy between physicians and and nurse practitioners we're two different models you know and and so it's it's unfortunately there seems to be a this versus them or us versus them or a we and them or however you want to think of it and it, it's it, it's it's there it just i've seen it firsthand now and i i used to want to say that you know that, that person would never be like that and yet it kind of exists out there so um do i trust Trust physicians? Absolutely, I trust physicians. Are my friends with them? Yeah, absolutely. Am I, you know, do I have them in my family? Yes, I do. But I think that um, when come when it comes down to it, you know, they're still physicians. You know, you got to be, and you got to watch your back with what you're doing and how you're doing things in your practice and in your profession. Because I think at the core, there is a desire to see the profession of nurse practitioning not as successful as it has become. And I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to talk about that anymore. And uh, but but uh, thanks for those those anecdotes, guys. Thanks for telling me your stories. Thanks for spreading uh, the word yesterday. I got a lot, a lot of good uh, shares. It was amazing. So I appreciate that, guys. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? We've got a couple things that came in, and I was like, one literally came in this morning. And I told you before, I'm a, I'm a last in, first out. So if if you haven't got your question answered, re-email me, re-message me if you have a burning desire, because it'll get to the top of the pile quicker, and I'll, I'll I'm sure I'll do it faster. <laughs> Than going back and digging through my old stuff because I'm getting a pile of it now. Um, this one came in this morning and I was like, "Wow, all right, we we need to talk about this one because it's um it's kind of right up my alley. It's a contract related question, but it's it's a new grad question. So I mean, I just kind of went through this stuff, and so this th there's a lot of specifics in this question that I'm not going to get into the specifics because I don't want 
to divulge anything. And if anybody happens to be listening, works in that practice and says, hey, they asked the MP dude a question and and then you don't get the deal and it falls through because of me, I would feel like crap. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. So I promised you I won't, I won't do that. But what was the main issue here? And there was a lot of moving parts in this email and it was, or this uh, message to me. And, and I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but here's the main concerns that I have for an issue. The um, hypothetical is a new grad negotiating first contract. Contract is low salary, lower than what they were making as an RN, but had a bonus structure in place. And the question is, is should I should I do a bonus structure right off the bat? And it might might you know my answer. It's, it depends, right? It depends on what the bonus structure is. It depends on how trustworthy this group is, and it depends on a lot of the, the pieces puzzles. Now, knowing what I know now, would I have wanted to do a bonus structure for my first year? No, I wouldn't. And here's why: because I don't know how productive I'm going to be. Okay, if you have a productivity based model that that is your first year of work, first off. You don't know how fast you're going to be. You don't know if you're going to meet your, your bonuses. So if the salary base is sufficient enough that it's going to keep you um, where you're comfortable, then I would say, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal. You can roll the dice for a year or six months, right? And so you could you could shorten up the contract term. And I didn't get a contract term in there. So that's a question that you need to look at too. Is your contract for six months, one year, two years, three years? Uh, if it's any longer than three years, then you, I, I'm going to tell you, first off, I wouldn't sign that anyways. Even three years is too long. Two years is a long term. So if this productivity-based model is on a two- or three-year contract and you have no idea what you're going to be signing and getting into, absolutely do not sign that paper. That's my, and this isn't legal advice. This is just, I wouldn't sign it. Not going to do it. Let's rework that to a shorter term of, say, six months to a year, and then we'll see where I am with my quarterly bonuses because I need to be hitting my bonuses more often than not if, if I'm going to count on the salary being really realistically what it would be. Now, the numbers I'm seeing was if it's about an RN and I saw the other numbers, so you're up of like 25, you're still less than your base salary would be if you were negotiating a, a in most parts of the country, even with all your bonus, based on what you told me in your in your PM, I'm talking spe specifically to this person. Even if you hit your bonuses, you're still low. Period. So number one, I wouldn't sign it because of that. It's too low. It's just not enough. And number two, there's no guarantees that you're going to hit those bonuses. Now, the bonus models, how do they work? There's a bunch of different ways you can have bonus structure established. And when I was negotiating, I was trying to get a bonus structure based on number of patients seen. How many patients do I see in a day? Okay. And even that, knowing what I know now, I, I, would, have, I would have hated my deal because of where I am in my practice and the practice in the, is in the, in the part of the state that I'm in because it's just not achievable very well. Not the way that I've got it set up now. So here, here's some moving parts that are a problem for you that you need to think about. The, the way the bonus structure was established in this particular contract, I'm not going to tell you because it might give out too much information, but I'm going to give you multiple ways that they are, and it's one of them. You could have it based on RVUs. And the RVU, we've, we've touched on it in the past, and basically it's, it's um, a revenue-based model that was the old style of how it was done before the CPT codes and all that stuff. And, and RVUs still exist. People that say, oh, we don't do work on an RVU basis, bullcrap, they're still there. But 
most people don't, it's not a valuable number in reporting, so nobody uses it. So in family practice, your RVU per um, CPT code of like a 99213 is around a 0.9, it's like one. All right, if you get a 1.4, it's like a 1.4 RVU. So you can convert that from a CPT code, but nobody, what's the point? I'd rather just know what I bill out with a CPT code and say, okay, well, if I bill out a CPT code of a 99214 is my billing code, then I get like, you know, 60 bucks or 70 bucks. This depends on where you are in the country. It's always different, right? So if I'm a, if I'm a 60 bucks, I just know, okay, well, if I bill out the majority of my codes are a 14, I'm, I'm bringing in 60 bucks every 20 minutes. And you can work your math that way, Okay. That's one model of, of doing your reimbursement of, of your bonus structure. The other one that's out there is based upon um, your total number of patients, which is what I was trying to do. So if you say, well, I don't care what my CPT code is, I'm always going to be between a 1.3 and a 1.4. I don't go 1.2. I never do 1.2. And I, and I have some other ones out there that I do that pay even more, like... Um, uh, well, wellness visits like Medicare wellness G code ones, those, those pay a lot more, right? Like 160. So I'm going to hit some of those too. So on average, I'm around a 1.4, but you know I'm going to work my numbers based upon number of patients and assuming they're all a 1.4. But it's all based on patients. Another model is going to be based upon receivables, not what they bill out, but what they receive back. And we can go for a step before that and say billings. So instead of the number of patients that I see, it's the number that is billed out to um, the insurance companies, not what's paid by the insurance companies. So that's another model. You could get a certain percentage of what's billed out. Okay, it's another model. It's right there. And then the third, the last model would be the receivables that I. And this is the, that I know of. I mean, there's probably other structures, but these are the most common ones. And you and you get a reimbursement on your quarter or monthly or whatever your structure is that you get um, so much percentage of what you actually brought in to the practice. Now, here's the problems I have with all of these, okay? When you start out, number one, you don't know what you're going to be billing out, okay? And even more importantly, you don't know how many insurance companies you're going to get credentialed with. And in that first year, it might take, you know, three, four, five, six months, seven months, a year, depending on, you know, your credentialing person, how aggressive they are. They may, you might be limited by the number of insurance companies that you're seeing, so you might not even be able to see that many people in a day that would even get you close to your, your revenue for that model. So the first quarter, you're not going to get it anyways. So if they're saying, oh, yeah, well, you can get that this quarter. No, you won't, because you're only going to be on probably three or four, maybe five insurance plans, and you're going to be limited by the number of people seen in that practice because you're not going to be getting money in. <laughs> you, if you see patients, they might not be billing for them because they may just say, well, we're just getting you experience because you're not covered by that insurance. So that might be a very, very important part for you is that you might not be able to meet your revenue um, revenue in, revenue out, um, number of patients seen, whatever model it is. You just might not be able to achieve any of those in the first six months. Just because you're not, plus you're building up a practice, or you know, it just depends. It really, really depends. So, I, I would, I would hesitate to do a model of of reimbursement built into your salary, unless you could achieve that goal. 
easily achieve, achieve it. Like it's your, you know, your base. You know, like if, if I'm expected to see 15 people a day, my revenue-based model for bringing in my bonus program would be, you know, I don't know, 12. So I should be able to meet that because you're going to have cancellations. That's another thing that's in there too. I have uh, a lot of Medicaid in my practice. So, you know, you, you, you could book people to come in for follow-ups and see kids that you're like, man, I really need to see this person back. And they don't show up. So your schedule has a big fat hole in it. And you got three or four or five or six of those a day that don't show up. So if you're based upon revenue in, revenue out, and you're billing the Medicaid stuff, which doesn't pay very well anyways, um, be very careful. If you're doing it by number of patients, you got to be careful that you can get the number that you're that you're thinking of. Now, all this being said, do I like the idea of a productivity? But yeah, I do because I like the idea that if I work harder, I should be able to make more money. I'm okay with that. That's a great model, but you have to be the right mindset. So, what are some of the the other pitfalls? If someone is based upon a revenue um, coming in and you have a crappy billing person that's dropping the ball on getting your billings out, and, or is it aggressive going after those resubmittals of insurance claims to get paid, then that could directly affect your ability to get your bonus. So if you got somebody that's just slacker, it, whether it's getting you credentialed in the first instance and not getting you enough pace, patience to be seen, or you're gonna be you know, at the whim of somebody that is, um, bringing the money into the practice, that, that that's not going to work. So now here's what my recommendation would be. And this is what I will do and when it, in my future endeavors, wherever I am, this is going to be a negotiation tactic, period. I'll say, look, the first year I want my salary to be this and it needs to be comfortable, right? It's got to be more than your RN rate. And it's for me to learn, it's not going to be the maximum. This is where I want to start. And, and this is my learning year. And what we're going to do is we're going to give me quarterly reports that you think that you, you know, how we want to set up our reimbursement, whatever it is for your quarterly, you know, quote, bonus structure. And I'll get into that in a second, too. And then and then I would say, well, we're only going to do this for a year as a trial. And then in year two, we're going to renegotiate the deal based upon the productivity that I had in year one. And that sets the goals. That's fair. And, and, I, and I, I even did this when I was negotiating my first deal. I said, look, I want to do it based on number of patients, not billings, not revenue, because if you have a bad billing person that's not sending out claims or you've got bad uh, deals with insurance companies and they're not reimbursing you, that's not my fault as a provider. I have nothing to do with that. I can't control that, so that's, that's on you, not me. So I'll do it based on number of patients coming in or the number of patients that I see or the revenue, the RVU numbers that I bill out. That's fine. I'm okay with that. That I am seeing my work, not anybody else's. That's my recommendation there. So you base it on what you're doing. That's only fair. And then the other thing that I would do too is I would make it a very limited term, short term but long enough that you're credentialed on all the insurance plans that they cover in the office. So if you think that you can be credentialed and up and running full swing in six months, I'd make it six months. If, you, if they say, well, it's gonna take eight months for this insurance and you know, seven months for this insurance and three months for this one or, and maybe nine months for that one, I'd say let's make it a year because after you know, that last quarter you wanna be in the swing of things, you wanna be hitting your goals, 
you want to be hitting where you think you're going to be with that. And then I would base my, my, my bonus structure on that. Now, bonus structure. I hate the word bonus structure because it insinuates that you get nothing. Or you could get something. It's a bonus. It's extra. It's above and beyond. And that's not really what you're doing. You're making this part of your salary based upon your productivity. So I would change the mentality and I would tell them right up front, this isn't a bonus. This is part of my salary. This is, this is uh, you know, if you get paid, you know, twice a month and you, you know, you're doing this every three months, this is your seventh paycheck in that first quarter. And that's the mentality that, that I would have going into it. So I wish you guys the best on these. The, I mean, it really is hard because what do you do if this is the only deal in town and you really, really want to work there and everything else looks great? But here's the problem is if you feel undervalued at the beginning, wait until you're, you're charting at 9, 10 o'clock at night on your time, not getting paid. Wait until you feel that. Talk about feeling undervalued. If you feel undervalued at the beginning, you're going to really feel it once you're given that free free time to do the work that you're already not getting paid for. So I, I would negotiate it higher. The, the ones I'm seeing out there that are like this, that one in particular, I, I would not I would not sign that. I just wouldn't. But that's me. I, would I fault you for signing it? No. I wouldn't. But I would, I would hope that you would do some research on it and know what you're getting into on that before before you really commit to it. Now, again, I, would, I wouldn't sign a two-year deal on that. I just wouldn't. Or if you do sign a two-year contract, I would say that in one year you're going to renegotiate your salary and salary structure in good faith and put that in the contract. And so that way there's an expectation that at, at 12 months you're going to start doing that. Now, at nine months you're going to start asking for reports. And, and I, would, I would expect that you would lay the groundwork for that now while you're negotiating. What reports are you going to show me? I want to see exactly what you're going to give me before I sign this document. I want to see the report you're providing me so that I can verify that there's valuable information on there that will allow you an ability to calculate what your, what your extra salary would be. Quote, unquote, bonus. I hate saying bonus, but that's how everybody knows it. So I, I would make sure that there's a pathway for you to figure that out, and I would make sure that you you ex- explain your expectations and put it in writing, not so much that you can you know and reinforce and, and sue them for it later. Yeah, you probably could do that, but that's dumb. I would do it so that the expectations aren't forgotten. So you could point back to it at, at 11 months and say, okay, we're going to renegotiate this term in a month. Remember we talked about it and you said, yes, I'd be happy to do that with you. Oh, and here's the paper that says we would, here's how we were going to renegotiate the process. And so I'd like those reports so we can start thinking about what, what numbers we need to be. And, and I even have done this too, where I told people when I was negotiating with them that, you know, I'll do a, you know, a low salary this year, but I want a bonus structure, quote unquote. And, um, I fully anticipate that by year two, I'm hitting this dollar amount, whether it's, you know, and it's, it was pretty aggressive and they didn't blink because they know, they know you're going to be pulling more money in. And so another 10 grand or 15 grand to them, you know, that's just, you know, that's, that's them going on a little bit nicer vacation (laughs) for the year. So what? They still got plenty of money. They're still rolling in it. There's no reason that they can't spread the love. So I encourage you to, and I know I went really long on this one, but man, what a good topic. And what a, the jeepers creepers. It was really oppressively like, yeesh. 
But you know, if you need to sign that deal to get get experience, sign the deal. But you keep in mind that the low pay that you're getting in that deal is that it's based upon the idea that you're doing it for experience. And chances are you're either going to have to really negotiate hard, right? And when that contract's up to get you back to where you need to be, which is always more painful, or you're going to be leaving there. And you're going to be kind of jaded that they wouldn't, they didn't appreciate you enough to do that. Now, here's another thing I saw somebody comment on, and and um, it was kind of the other end of this where they were finishing up their contract, they were still working there, but they were hiring new grads that were coming in after this person, and they saw that they were negotiating harder than that than they did, and they got the the new people got better deals, like substantially making more, way more money <laughs> because of it. And whose fault is that? I, I don't know. Uh, is it? Can you blame the, the business side, the business person, the owner of the company? They're trying to get good deals so that they can keep the doors open, right? I mean, that's their, that's what they're arguing, so that they have more profit and more flexibility and they make more money for them. It's, it's business. You, you still got to protect yourself, though. So what do you do when that happens? You got somebody that's coming in behind you making you know 20 grand more than you. 30 grand more than you, 40 grand more than you as a new grad and you're experienced and you're, you're making this a productive place and you're, you're making them a ton of money, man, I would negotiate hard with that one. I'd come down hard on that one or I'd leave, you know, and it's up to them. It goes both ways. If they don't want it, if they don't like what they're, what, what you're getting paid and they won't negotiate with you, bye. See ya. It's not personal. If you can't, if you don't think I'm valuable enough to pay me, see ya. If I think I'm worth more than that. And, and now, can I command that somewhere else? That's the bigger question. So good luck to you. I wish you the very, very best. And if you have follow-up information you want, PM me, reply back to me, or uh, you guys can email me, jeff at the npdude.com. And uh, that was a fun one. I, I, I get fired up about the contract stuff, but it's like personal. And man, it's just don't, don't, just jump in. That's fun. All right. Now, what else do we have today? Got another one a couple days ago that came in that was about... Um, and I think this person does addiction medicine from based upon what I've seen on Facebook and I've seen them post before and I know they've liked this, the, the, the MP dude podcast um, and has, has been listening for a while and they sent me a question and said um, and I'm not going to say who you are said what do you think about with the, the, with the buprenorphine um, waiver training allowing family practice pretty much anybody that wants to get the training can get the training now and what do you think about family practice nurse practitioners doing suboxone in their family practices and what's your take on that and I thought well that's a good comment that's a good question because I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence right because there's a huge diversion potential for all opiates including suboxone and there's a good way that um, it's it's easy to take advantage of the system in outpatient, and that's why a lot of this isn't appropriate. Whether it's you know long-term chronic pain management or um, other scheduled medicines, I just don't think are appropriate in family practice because we don't have you know we're busy doing a lot of different stuff, and we don't spend all our energy doing that and tracking urine drug screens and and controlled substance agreements, and it's easy for us to fall out of. Um, good practice and be very routine in how we do things and it's easy for people to say oh well i have an appointment every month and i know i'm gonna pee in a cup every month well okay well that doesn't that, that means that you can take 30 days 29 days worth say one take take it pee in a cup and you're positive for it and it shows no diversion 
And so you, it's hard to do that in family practice. So do I think that Suboxone should be in family practice? I think it can be, but I think you have to have multiple resources in place before you should be doing it. And this is what I've, I've we've talked about this in my office, and, I, and I've said these are the things I want in place before I'll even get my waiver. So I did the training, but I never even applied for the waiver because I need multiple things in place. One, in Ohio, we have a collaborative agreement. i got to make sure that my collaborative has a Suboxone waiver training, and he's got his done, period, because I can't do it unless he does it. Because in Ohio, that's outside of the scope of practice. Even if I'm capable, competent, and ready to go, my, my collaborative has to be do, doing it too. So that's my first hurdle. Second hurdle. Addiction, from what I've learned from addiction, and I did a little bit of it just for a brief period before really going full swing in family practice. I mean, really short period of time. Um, not enough to even say I was competent, but enough that I saw the issues with it in, in intensive outpatient program and inpatient programs. You need intensive counseling, you need AA meetings, and you need random urine drug screens. Those are the three things that need to be in place for any medicated-assisted treatment to be effective because the medication is the assisted part. It's, it's making, and you, if you haven't listened to all my podcasts, go back. I've done, you know, why I was wrong about, you know, opiate addiction and the treatment and stuff like that. Just just put opiate in the search tool and you'll come up with that show. It'll be one of the, the top ones for it. So go back and listen to that one. You'll get my view on opiates and, and treatment and things like that. But medicated assisted treatment, in short, is just that. It's assisted. It's not the treatment. The, the treatment for opiate addiction is counseling and AA meetings period. So if you're in a family practice that doesn't have the resource that's giving you good feedback between counseling and um, and available AA meetings and making sure that they're getting sign-in sheets and talking to them about it and that you've got somebody that knows AA and can talk to them to make sure that they're really doing what they're supposed to be doing in AA. They're not just sitting in the back of the room looking at their tennis shoes, that they're actually participating, they're finding a sponsor, they're working the steps, all that stuff. If that's not being done, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do it. It's not. It's a band-aid. It's not, and the, and the diversion potential is too high. So, would I do it? Yes, but would I do it? Um, you know, without any of those things, no, I wouldn't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Now, the problem is, is the it's a double-edged. Nothing's that easy, right? It's it's hard to be, you know, black and white on this one because people are dying. And so, could I save a life by giving Suboxone to somebody? Yeah, I could. And so it's, you know, is that one of those questions where, man, I'd rather just give them the Suboxone and pray that they, they don't OD, you know, because with Suboxone, you, you know, it's in your system. When you have the Narcan in your system, the Naloxone, it, it, you really can't overdose um, on Suboxone. You know, they, they may be able to overdose on other stuff, but they're not going to overdose on Suboxone. So you're not going to kill anybody with it, but... It's the you know you're, you're making you may be making the problem worse in the community, and I don't know if that's the right way to go. And is there money to be made in this? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's grants. I think there's funding. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of resources that are going to be opened up across the country for this. And I think if you're on the cutting edge of doing it well, you're gonna you you stand a chance to be able to keep the doors open longer and and maybe make a little money and help a lot of people along the way too. I mean that's that's the ultimate goal. But yeah, I don't know. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts. Those of you that work in family practice that's doing Suboxone, if you're out there, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what resources you use. I want to know what um, 
what you're seeing as problems because this is new to a lot of us and so you know i'm just presupposing what the problems will be <clears throat> we don't really know you know 10 years from now we might say well, wow we, we went down the wrong path we did it wrong we should have all went with you know vivitrol instead or you know something like that so give me give me a shout out on on um Facebook, give me a PM if you guys are doing this. If you're doing uh, Suboxone treatment, I want to hear from you guys. If you're doing it in family practice and you're doing it with or without resources from uh, counseling and AA, I want to hear. I want to hear what, how successful you are. How are you tracking that? How are you measuring it? How are you doing your drug screening and, and managing that in a family practice setting? I'd love to hear that. So PM me. Send me an email, Jeff, at the npdude.com. Um, keep sharing the show, guys. You, that was amazing. And my, my buddy Ryan shared it too, and I, I appreciate you doing that, man. That was awesome. That was awesome for you to do that. You didn't have to do that. You went out of your way and did that. He shared the main page, and uh, and my I had a nice little explosion of views right after that. So I mean, it was fantastic. So you guys out there, if you like what you hear, give me a rating. I got another one on Facebook. Give me a rating on iTunes. Um, I, I'm still getting a lot of fives. I know, five out of fives. I, I don't think I'm that good. I really don't. I'm not. I'm not begging you for low numbers, but I just don't think I'm that good. And and so I got people that are giving me that are really liking the show that are giving me five out of fives, and I really appreciate that. Uh, but man, I just I know there's people out there that are like, man, you're a solid three. <laughs> this is where I think you are, and here's why. I'm cool with that. I'm open source. So whatever I am, I am. So uh, keep listening, keep sharing, keep sending me ideas, and we'll talk soon.